We're going to be considering over these next few weeks something which for some is amongst the most contentious Christian doctrines and which actually divide some in terms of opinion at least, those, even those who would call themselves evangelical. Uh, we've already seen uh, something of what Paul is going to be talking about already in this letter. Um, it's clearly on display in chapters 29 and 30, of, in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 8, the fact that those who belong to Christ are those he foreknew, those he predestined, those he called. Uh, but now Paul will expand upon that, that theme and others and uh, kind of lay it all down before us full square and crystal clear. And Paul knows that many people, both Jew and Gentile, will find some of these truths very difficult to swallow. The, anyone who has a Jewish background in particular, especially in his day. And so he provides answers and explanations and examples and addresses all the kinds of questions and objections that he knows people are wanting to raise or which will at least rise up within their own hearts about these things that he's about to teach us including how all of these things relate to the Christian church, how all of this fits together. Paul's just been talking about the fact that he is lamenting that so many of his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, lie outside of the grace of God regarding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many of them have rejected Christ and have rejected the gospel. And if you look at verse 14, you'll see that Paul asks a question. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In other words, how can such things be of God? How can this be true? And Paul will begin to answer and address people's doubts and fears over what he's about to explain, and we'll be looking at those things in coming weeks. But first things first, and one step at a time. Let's first of all see what these issues are that Paul is going to lay before us, and he does that in verses 6 to 13. So, as we saw last week in verses 1 to 5, Paul is deeply lamenting the fact that so many fellow Israelites have rejected Christ not acknowledged him as the promised saviour. They have not trusted him, as we were thinking about this morning. They do not know him as their saviour and their Lord, even though he's the one promised to them all through the Old Testament. And it may not be so obvious to you in Liverpool in the 21st century, but many in Paul's day would have realised that what Paul is saying here is unexpected, inexplicable, and very, very worrying indeed. How on earth could Paul feel estranged from his own people? They are, after all, verses 4 and 5, the Israelites, 
to whom pertain the adoption, glory, covenants, giving of the law, service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So the question is this, verse 6, all those things that we read about concerning Israel in the Old Testament, all of those promises, for example, a future king descended from David and an everlasting kingdom. You remember the blind men this morning, son of David, has all of that somehow failed to materialise? Have all of those promises proved to just come to nothing? Has the Word of God been exposed as being seriously flawed and found wanting? No, it hasn't, says Paul in verse 6, in anticipation of how people are going to respond. It is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. It's not that all of those things written in the Old Testament have not come to pass. They have, and they are, and they will do, he's saying. And then follows this, which for many is earth-shattering. They are not all Israel, who are of Israel. What on earth is Paul trying to say here? Simply this. There are actually two Israels. Two. Yes, two. There is an earthly nation of Israel. And there is God's true spiritual Israel. Point one. There is an earthly nation of Israel. There is God's true spiritual Israel. They are not all of God's true spiritual Israel who are of the nation of Israel. Those who are of Israel, Israelites by means of physical birth, blood relatives of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, men and women and boys and girls who, like Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3, can trace their family tree all the way back through the Old Testament. And all the males in their families have all been circumcised on the eighth day and so forth. You see how he puts it in verse 7. You think that because you are the seed of Abraham, in other words, physically descended from Abraham, this qualifies you to consider yourself to be a child of God. But it doesn't. What? Now the impact that this would have had on a first century Jew is completely lost on us Gentile scousers in the year 2022. But this is shattering news for a Jew. 
not a child of Abraham. No wonder Paul and the early church were persecuted by his fellow Jews. This is scandalous for a Jew to hear. Of course, Paul has already touched on this in this letter, back in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he's already explained, it's not about having Abraham's blood in your veins. It's about having the same kind of faith that Abraham had in your heart. It's about being a true believer. In chapter 2, he says this, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward and in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit. And nothing's changed in that respect. And in fact, a church congregation can be in exactly the same situation. Not everyone in the congregation is necessarily part of the church. To be a Christian is to be one inwardly, to have a changed heart, a changed nature, to have been born again. Are you? Are you in or are you out? You might be in the congregation this evening, but are you a member of Christ's church? That's the question. Paul speaks here about those who are only of Israel. And that's actually as Paul describes himself as he once was before his conversion. Do you remember what he says in Philippians chapter 3? If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, confidence of the family you were born into, I more so, says Paul, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That once was his confidence. That once was his hope. That's all that's needed, he thought. That is all that God requires. It's all about us, the Israelites. And that's what I am. But oh, how wrong he had been. But he sees it now. He understands it now. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. There is another Israel Aside from the physical nation, God's true spiritual Israel. So there's of Israel, the nation. Within that Israel may be found God's true Israel. There are those within the nation who are true believers, but they're actually in the minority. And interestingly, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul refers to the church as the Israel of God. This true spiritual Israel 
and the church, they're actually the same thing. They're not two separate identities. And more on that as we make our way through the next few chapters in this letter. And many will be thinking, Paul, you're going to have to explain this to me a little bit more. And he understands that, and so he does. It's got nothing to do with physical birth, he says. That's not what makes you a child of God. Look at verse 8. Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. It's the children of the promise who are counted as seed. It's about those to whom the promises were made and given. But God gave his promises to Israel, someone might say. Yes, says Paul, but which Israel? Of Israel, the whole nation? Or his true spiritual people? So the first thing he points out is, he says, it's not about to whom or of whom you were born. Physical birth has nothing to do with it. It's about to whom and of whom the promises were made and given. The children of promise, verse 8. It's about the word of promise, verse 9. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, it actually is very obvious and clear that not all of Israel are God's true Israel. It's brought home to us many times and in many ways. It's particularly evident in the way that so many Israelites in the Old Testament die in sin and in unbelief and sometimes under the clear and direct judgment of God. Now, think about the children of Israel who came out of bondage in Egypt. The nation of Israel. What do we read about those people who came out of Egypt in Numbers chapter 32? We read this. The Lord's anger was aroused that day and he swore an oath saying, surely none of the men who came up from Egypt, talking about the Israelites, none of them from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So that promise that I gave to Abraham, that land flowing with milk and honey, all of these generations are never going to see it. The reality being the promise was never for them. They are not the children of promise. Why? This is verses 10 to 13 of Numbers 32. Because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb and Joshua. They have wholly followed the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. So why did it take them 40 years to do a journey that should have only taken months? God made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. 
And this is his own nation that he's talking about. These are Israelites he's addressing. These are Israelites he's dealing with. Because not all who are of Israel are God's true Israel. Caleb and Joshua were. The bodies of hundreds of thousands of Israelites were buried in the wilderness. They were of Israel, but they were not Israel. And having led the people to the land of Canaan, Joshua had to rebuke the people over their sin and over their idolatry and made clear God's judgment against them. You can read about this in Joshua 24. And then there's those famous words that Joshua has to put to them. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Surely he shouldn't have to say that to them. Shouldn't they know who they ought to serve? Shouldn't it be in their hearts who it is they're serving? Well, it should be, but it isn't. As for me and my house, says Joshua, we will serve the Lord. But he has to put that strong exhortation to the nation. Why were such rebukes necessary? Well, it's because even then, not all who were of Israel were God's true Israel. And the history of the nation, you read through the historical books in the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and so on, their history is littered with examples of horrendous idolatry and immorality, as many of you know. It's clear that there were many in Israel. They enjoyed all kinds of blessings and privileges, the kinds of things that Paul talks about there in verses 4 and 5 of Romans 9. What blessings they enjoyed. But they never believed in or trusted in God or loved God the way a true believer loves God. Because being of God's true Israel is all about being a child of promise. Being in that group to whom and of whom those promises were given. Well, exactly who was that? How exactly does that work then, Paul? Well, he gives us some examples. And so this is our second point. God's promises concern his true spiritual Israel, not the nation of Israel. Let's begin by thinking back to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18, where God said to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's not going to be just about Israel. It was never going to be just about Israel. All the nations in the earth are going to be blessed through what I am going to bring through you and your descendants, Abraham. And again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, God repeatedly tells Israel that what he desires from them, what he's looking for in them, is wholehearted love from them towards him. But again and again, that is completely absent amongst the Lord's people. And as the history of the Old Testament unfolds, we find that the promises that God is making start to be focused not upon the whole nation of Israel, but on a, a much smaller number of them, which become referred to as the remnant 
just a remnant of Israel. No longer the whole nation, just a remnant of them. That remnant being God's true spiritual Israel. So, just glance down to verse 27 of chapter 9. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. The remnant. Verse 11, uh, ver chapter 11 and verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Well, we'll come on to those verses in due course. But Paul is explaining that if you start to understand the word of God correctly and look back through how God has dealt with Israel, you'll see that all of these things are true. The issue that Paul brings to our attention here is that the promises that God has given to Israel in the Old Testament are not as all-embracing for the nation as you might suppose them to be. And it's not that God's word has taken no effect. The problem is they haven't properly understood God's word. Well, let's take an example from the Old Testament, says Paul, in verse 7 of chapter 9. They are not all children just because they are born of Abraham. He's going to point us to the Old Testament nearly 20 times just in the rest of this chapter. But he says, well, let's start with Isaac. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. And that's from Genesis chapter 21, verse 12. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. God had given a promise to Abraham and Sarah about this vast family which would come from them. But they were childless and they were old. Yet God had promised them a son. Paul reminds us of that at verse 9. A son has been promised to them. This is the word of promise. I will come and Sarah shall have a son. God's promised them a son. But they're old and childless, and so as those of you who know the story, you know that they take matters into their own hands. And Abraham fathers a child through one of Sarah's maidservants, and they call the name of that boy Ishmael. But Ishmael was never in God's plans when he gave that promise to Abraham. Ishmael was not the son that God had promised. Then Sarah miraculously conceives in very old, very old age and gives birth to Isaac. He is the promised son. Isaac is the child of promise. He's the fulfilment of the promise and he is the channel for that promise moving forward. The promise is not about Abraham's entire family. Abraham's got two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But the promise God has given concerns only Isaac, not Ishmael. Even right at the start of the story, not all who are Abraham's are of God's true Israel. Only Isaac is. 
It's about the children who God has in view when he gave the promise. And you might be wondering, what on earth has this got to do with me as a Christian? Well, if you're a Christian, it's because you are in a particular line of descent. But it's not a line of descent that comes through your physical birth. It's a line of descent according to this promise that God has given. You are a child of the promise. You're part of that group promised to Abraham to be drawn from all nations. That was you in that promise that God gave to Abraham. Can we be sure about this? Yes, we can. Well, how do we know? Well, listen to Paul when he writes to the Galatians, when he addresses a similar theme with them. In Galatians chapter 3, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise, you see. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's about the promise. The promise. Galatians 4, verse 28. Now we, brethren, speaking to Christians, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. You as a Christian are the fulfillment of divine promise. Well, back to Isaac, who, when he was a man, would have a wife, Rebecca. She would give birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Esau, the firstborn. Then Jacob, he was the one who, remember, would steal the birthright from his older brother. That's in Genesis 25. But for those two sons, even though on this occasion with these two lads, they were both born naturally to the same mother, so that the promise given to Abraham might be fulfilled, it proceeds only through one. Only through one. The promise given to Abraham is proceeding only through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then these twin boys arrive, and the promise is going to bypass Esau, just like it bypassed Ishmael, and continue only through Jacob. So in Genesis 25, we read this. This is God speaking to Rebekah. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Rebekah, your two lads are going to go like this. They're both of Israel, but only one is of God's true Israel. They're both born to the same mum and dad, but only one is chosen and called of God. Only one is a child of that promise. Those two boys, though brothers, though even twins, both descended from Abraham and Isaac to equal degree. They are heading down two completely different paths and it's all God's doing. 
And Paul is using these well-known, revered characters from the Old Testament and from Jewish history to demonstrate that from the very outset, not all of Israel are God's true Israel. It's never been that way. God's word has been clear from the start, Paul is saying. It's men's faulty understanding that's to, to blame. And Paul's going to make it clear that the word which came from God to Rebekah concerning the future of her two sons, this wasn't simply letting Rebekah know how things would work out. This is God revealing his very own plans and purposes for these two boys. All of these things are God's choosing and God's doing. The nation of Israel does have a part and a role to play in God's plans and purposes in the Old Testament. He chose them, he established them as a nation. He separated them to himself in the world. But not all of them individually are his elect ones. Ishmael wasn't, Esau wasn't, Jacob is. To the nation of Israel, God's revealed himself. He sent his prophets to them and spoke through them. He performed many signs and wonders on their behalf. He gave them his word, his holy law. He established amongst them a form of worship which was acceptable to himself. He's, he shows himself to be a God of covenant and promise. Yet all the time, God is also making plain that what he really desires is a living relationship and fellowship with his people from the heart. But very many of them never knew the reality of that. And they were kept from it by their own innate sinfulness. And they were instead enslaved by their sins, just as we all are. And many of them remained that way. Many of them died that way. One day they'll be judged and condemned as the sinners that they are. Many who are of Israel are not God's true Israel. And what marks out those who are God's true Israel is that they have been chosen by God for no other reason than his electing grace. You are a Christian because of God's electing grace. And this is our final closing point. God's true Israel are his elect ones chosen by him. And Paul expounds this as he asks us to consider Rebekah and her two boys, Esau and Jacob, twin lads, both of them Israelites by birth. And rather than the firstborn, Esau, taking the primary role in the family, as is the custom, it would be Jacob, the younger brother, who would assume that position. Why? Well, Paul makes it clear the reason for it is that God determined that beforehand for these two boys. The language is stark, isn't it? Many Christians stumble over these verses because they simply refuse to believe that God could act like this. And if that's you, well, I'm sorry, but you've invented your own version of God and you're rejecting the God who reveals himself in the Bible. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. Now that's strong, isn't it? 
That's strong. That's stark. Why has God done that? Well, God decided this even before they were born. Verse 11. The children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. It's not because of anything that can be found in Esau or Jacob. It's not because of anything they've done. It's not because of anything they've thought. It's not because of anything they've said. It's all been decided by God beforehand. It was entirely of God from beginning to end. He chose this for Jacob. And he chose Jacob for this. But Esau for that. And certain objections arise in some minds straight away. How can this be just or fair? Is there unrighteousness with God? Verse 14. Well, Paul, Paul anticipates such objections and replies to them. And we'll look at that further next time. Who knows how long it took the apostle to really find that he could accept these truths given what he says of himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews who he used to be. What a work of grace it's been in his heart and in his mind to turn him around to see these truths and then to be able to teach them. But for this evening, remember this, the Bible teaches us about God's electing grace. Ishmael, Esau, they were sinners. And as sinners, they deserve no favour from God. And for that reason, he has not dealt with them unjustly. His treatment of them is not an issue. His treatment of them is not unjust or unfair. The truth is that sinners are happy in their sins. They love the darkness rather than the light. Isaac, Jacob, they too are sinners. But they become the object of God's electing grace according to his purpose and for no other reason. It's all hidden in God. Not all who are of Israel are God's true Israel. And those of Israel who are God's true Israel are in that blessed place only because God has set his electing grace upon them and they are the children of his promise. And those promises extend beyond the bounds of Israel to all nations of the earth, which is how and why it's come to you and come to me. God's promise and God's electing grace in Christ. And so we come to him with empty hands, but with thankful hearts. We come deserving nothing, yet discover that we are his chosen children of promise in Christ. We come humbled by his grace and conquered by his love. We come claiming no credit for ourselves, but simply to give all glory and praise to our God and our Saviour.
tis not for works that we have done. These all to him we owe. But he of his electing love salvation does bestow. Not one of all the chosen race but shall to heaven attain. Here they will share abounding grace and there with Jesus reign. If you're a Christian this evening, you are a child of God's promise. You were promised to Abraham and here you are. That channel that you can trace through all the Old Testament scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Samuel, King David, all the rest. And then you and me because of promise and because of God's electing grace and love for you.